thank you. Well, at least it certainly is a pleasure to see an honest audience. That's terrible. Ladies and gentlemen out there in the great unseen radio audience, I can only, I can only apologize for the unseemly behavior of these klotzes who somehow got into our little tiny group. Well, one, well, one, just one radio listener who wants me to go on, who loves me for what I am, a sensitive individual. Well, just one, a sensitive, beautiful individual <laughs> of infinite, of infinite sensitivity and joy who has only love for all of mankind. Right, gang? <laughs> Now, are you booing mankind or love? Which is it? Or is it me you're booing? <laughs> oh, I can see this is going to be a difficult night. Will, will one, will one embattled listener out there in the darkness of Staten Island, out there in this poor little hovel, huddling next to a darkened air conditioner that hasn't worked since last year, please give me a call and say, carry on, chap. Silence. You notice the phones aren't ringing? Well, maybe that's because we are moving into International Love Week, which begins exactly at midnight tonight. And for those of you who are interested in love, incidentally, I've always felt that love is an, is an invention of America. Literally. In fact, I've often felt, too, uh, the way Clifford Odets put it, that if we should, instead of having an eagle for our insignia, we should have a cocker spaniel. <laughs> you know, sitting up begging, please love me, you know. Yeah, this is the way it is in our world today, and we might as well face it for what it is. I will never forget the first time. How many of you guys in this crowd remember, now this is maybe perhaps a male thing. I don't know, though. How many of you remember the first time when you discovered you were being rejected? Rejected! Which is, by the way, that's a word that strikes terror into the hearts of every living man and every chick in the world. Speaking of living men and chicks, have you seen that commercial? Have you noticed that everything is fun today? Have you seen that commercial where the guy's laying in bed and he's got a gigantic bandage on his head? And his feet are, you know, with the, with the cables holding it up to the ceiling there. He's laying there, and he's got a giant cast on his chest. And he's grinning like he's out of his skull. Because he's got all state insurance. <laughs> Did you see that one? And his friends say, you know, Charlie looks very cheerful. And you hear a, the laugh come out. Then there's, of course, there's all kinds of fun commercials. You... You've seen the fun Alka-Seltzer commercial. <laughs> Nothing I like better than to have a little fun with a couple of Alka-Seltzers. <laughs> oh, that's my idea of the new fun world. Well, of course, part of all this is, is the fact that, that most of us are vaguely afraid that we are not going to... What is fun? You ever, have you ever asked yourself what fun is? Some people find fun in cracking their knuckles. Oh, yeah. listen, I have a friend. I have a friend who sit down in the basement when I'm a kid. Bolus. 
Bolus Rakowski. He was shaped sort of like a small bowling ball with feet, you know. And Bolek used to sit there. That was his Polish name. Bolek Rakowski used to sit there and crack his knuckles. And all around him, you'd smell nothing but the smell of fermenting cabbage. Sauerkraut. Oh, it was a great face. What's the matter, honey? She's remembering something. <laughs> he sits down there and he cracks his knuckles. See, he could crack his knuckles. He had an eight-note eight range. A full octave, and I remember later on, when he really started to work, he got an octave and a half, which ain't easy. And he'd sit there and crack his knuckles to the Star Spangled Banner. And we would all, oh, yeah, I love it. And, and Schwartz would sit there and play his teeth. This is true folk music. You know, you put a number two Ticonderoga pencil across the margin, sit there, and he is playing Semper Fidelis. <laughs> Now, I am a rubber band man, you know, doing, 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 you know. I'm the Harpo Marx of the rubber band, see, playing away there. This is all part of that, of that eternal search that all of us have for that one magic thing. Fun. Fun. Old F-U-N, fun. Which is what all of us are looking for. I remember my old man. He pursued it all of his life. He pursued fun the way Ahab pursued the white whale. And as a matter of fact, fun was his white whale. And so I can remember him on a Sunday morning. You know, I wonder how many families still do this. He'd wake up late, about 10 o'clock in the morning. That's late for him. Every morning he went to work at 7. And so 10 o'clock we had this whole big rule. Everybody's got to shut up around the house. Sunday morning, the old man's asleep. <laughs> you remember that, you know, there's a kind of, there's an itchy feeling that kids get. That terrible itchiness. And, you know, you're walking around, standing on the bed. My kid brother is under the day bed, whimpering. <laughs> He's still there, by the way. <laughs> Funny, I hear from him once in a while, every couple of years, the phone rings, and I pick it up, and I hear, <laughs> It's Randy. He's still out in Hammond, Indiana, you know. <laughs> Covered with a Cretan daybed. Well, things really don't change. They just get bigger, that's all. <laughs> or littler. Well, Sunday morning was the fun morning. And so we had the big breakfast on Sunday. Now, that meant no uh, cream of wheat, you know. We would have eggs. We would have coffee cake and that whole business. And about 15 minutes after breakfast, the old man would start pacing. He'd get that wild look. Let's do something. And of course, I'd get that sick feeling. <laughs> I, I could feel, here we go, we're going to visit Aunt Glenn again. <laughs> aunt Glenn was, was, was a kind of aunt that, look, I'll tell you the kind of aunt she was. She bought incense burners from Woolworth. <laughs> you ever seen those incense burners that look like little golden Buddhas, you know? <laughs> And you put this little thing in there, it looks like a little pill, and you light it, and it smells up the whole house. And she had these little Chinese things that hung from the ceiling, little strips of glass, you know. She was that kind of aunt. She was a doily aunt. <laughs> and whenever the old man got the itch, on a Sunday morning, he says, let's do something. Let's do something. He'd walk back and forth, let's do something. Come on, come on, get dressed, kids. Oh, 
that sick feeling I'm trapped and out in the darkness I could hear Bruner Schwartz and Flick they're playing ball we are preparing to visit Aunt Glenn well why did we visit Aunt Glenn I want to tell you why we visited Aunt Glenn Uncle Tom who was her husband was my bootlegger uncle <laughs> he was totally the opposite of what Aunt Glenn should have had as a husband you know and he has got his basement full of all kinds of stuff none of which any of us could see by the way did you hear that sad news note on the air today you know have you ever had the vague feeling that hardly any of us matched the men of yesteryear you know you see Gary Cooper in an old movie and you know it's that it's that high noon syndrome and you hear the time ticking off tick 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 and that big train is arriving and getting off that train are three hardened killers slob clag and guts <laughs> big black hats and they step off and you can see them chick shooters banging up against their hips and there's only one man that stands between this poor little simple western town and total disaster old lank gary he's come riding down out of that far horizon a lone figure with the wind blowing and howling across the street of that simple western town the school marm is hiding in the church and that big old clock in the steeple says two minutes to noon old gary walks out and he knows what he's got to do and damn it, he's going to do it. $7,500 a week. And he's got the fastest draw on the metro lock. He walks out, you know, that loose hip walk. Stands there for a moment, rocks in the wind. And all of us sit out there in the darkness and sing. Great Scott. And we vaguely picture ourselves. When you're watching Gary Cooper or some... John Wayne type. Do you identify with him? Or do you identify with the little huddled band of cowards that are hiding there in the church? Is that who you identify with? <laughs> I'm afraid that's the truth. Well, there was a news note that came on the air today that was a great, a great story of the decline and fall of the West. A man was arrested in Miami today. His name... Al Capone Jr. And what was he arrested for? Stealing two bottles of aspirin and a transistor radio battery. Al Capone Jr. His old man stole the entire city of Chicago. Can you imagine can you imagine Al Capone Jr. where you know he's he's in the clink now? And down, down in the depths of hell and the bowels down there where the devil and all of his assistants are working him over, this huddled figure, this little, this little jot of the mafia looks up and he says, what was that? He stole what? This is two bottles of aspirin, Al. Two bottles of aspirin. He goes back to shovel. And he knows that Western civilization is doomed. <laughs> you got to think about that one, gang. Are there any Spangler fans in the crowd here? I guess I'm the only one. 
decline and fall of the West. Well, you know, speaking of, of West, have you ever been placed in that position where you really had to do something? Seriously had to do something when there was an event happening before you? You know, that's one of the great moral issues of our time. That's the disenfranchised individual. Do you have responsibility to society? In short, if somebody comes in here and they try to hold up the limelight, they come in with a couple of six-shooters, what do you do? Do you, do you shell out? Do you fight them? Do you call the police? Or do you try to get in with them? <laughs> hey, fella, I cased this joint myself, you know? you know? Which do you do? This is a great situation. You know, it's a very difficult problem. Well, each one of us in our lives has faced that kind of situation where you have to make a decision, a real decision. And I'll never forget the time I made a decision. Do you want to hear about it? Yeah. Holy smokes. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it happened at a dance like so many traumatic experiences do. <laughs> of one kind or another, I'll tell you. I think men are 50,000 times more embarrassed at dances than women for a lot of reasons, many of which I can't go into on the air. <laughs> and that's a problem, too. <laughs> You'll have to explain that one when you get back to Jersey. <laughs> but I am at this dance, see, and, and you, you, you remember, how many of you remember when they actually had places called dance halls? You know, just a dance hall, you know? And they had a joint outside of the town where I live and this joint was called the Dreamland Cafe. It was a dance hall. And there were guys called Mickey Isley's Dreamland Five. You know, outfits like that were playing there. And they had, they had colored lights. Blue lights, green lights, yellow lights. And it was very romantic. They had Japanese lanterns hanging. And you remember between the dances, these guys would come out and throw this stuff on the floor, these sparkle things, you know, so you'd slip better, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy, I'll tell you. They'd throw this stuff out, and everyone... And you were supposed to go between dances and sit down at your table. And you brought setups. You remember your big, big bottle of uh, Coke or something like that? And they would bring out the whiskey at, like, $4 a shot. That kind of thing. So you... So you, you this... You got the picture now. This was a hangout for the Martys of the period. You remember the movie Marty? <laughs> By the way, every week when we're down here, when we, have you noticed before the show I walk around and look at the tables here? I'm picking out the trouble table. That trouble table usually consists of four Martys who have not had a, a date in two years. And they are here at the limelight with a tall, thin girl with a mustache. <laughs> She's the den mother, you know. <laughs> oh, the Marty world is a very complex social world, see. And so me and Flick and Bruner, one night there was a certain quality of the illicit about the dreamland. A certain quality of excitement about it. Because you had to dress up to go there. And that always feels vaguely decadent. You know, sinful, rotten somehow, you know. And so one Friday night, Schwartz and Flick and Bruner were riding around doing, incidentally, do chicks ever do this? I'm going to ask a hypothetical question. Do girls ever ride around in cars, four of them, 
just ride around and look out of the car for, for guys? They do. We could get in some deep water here tonight, friends. Well, nevertheless, do, that, was, that, was a, that was a great hobby in, in northern Indiana, and it was called scragging. I don't know whether they use that expression underneath. They call it scragging, see? And, and, and what you would see out there walking around the streets were scrags. There were either good scrags or medium scrags or wowie, you know? And that was called scrags. Right around in, in, in Flick's car. And Flick's sitting up in the front there, see? He's driving. And that was always a very bad position, you know? You've got to watch your grill and stuff. He's driving away there. And Schwartz is off to his right. He was always riding shotgun. See? And I always played it back to back a back a flick right behind here. See, and over here would be Bruner, and we've got the radar going you know, all side. And on hot summer nights like this, we ride up and down South Chicago and in East Chicago, and the streets are teeming with chicks, and they're walking around. See, there'd be great streams of them. And I'd say, watch it, watch it, flick, watch it. Look at, look at three of them. Three of them coming in at 12 o'clock, watch. <laughs> Little did we realize we were getting training, you know, for later days. I said, here comes two at four o'clock. And Schwartz would holler, hey, baby! That was our blockbuster, see? And they would turn around and walk away, see? And then, then Flick would holler his only obscenity out the window at him, see? And then we'd start looking again. Looking again. That's all we ever did. Look. We just looked and looked and burned up gallon after gallon and after gallon of gas. And then after two and a half hours of scragging, we would drive in to the drive-in. Now, they don't have drive-ins around here like they have in the Midwest. These are carbuncles on the buttocks of civilization. <laughs> That's a colorful phrase, isn't it, Dad? I noticed she was scratching. <laughs> so so here, here's, here was the drive-in technique, see? The drive-in is laid right in the middle of an ex-cornfield. And they have paved it over asphalt. All over, you see. They put up a gigantic neon sign that stuck maybe 700 feet in the air. They had a big arrow. And the arrow just said, eat, eat. You know, these guys out here in the East talk about Jewish mothers saying eat. Listen, we had neon signs, eat, 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 eat. And so you see the drive-in, see Ted's miracle drive-in. Root beer, our specialty, two-foot hot dogs. And they had a gigantic root beer barrel that was lit up in red and green and yellow neon. And for miles around, people would come at maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. How do you like the idea of a civilization where the only exciting thing to do is to fill your gut? Is to eat. And so after you've done some scragging, this is a typical, this is why I'm telling the story, because right now there's about 25,000 guys listening to this who are out there scragging. Good luck, guys. 
Hey, fellas, turn up your radio, and I'll let I'll let go a blast for all of you. How about all of us hollering, "Hey, baby!" All together. All right, turn up your radio. Let's give them a, a gigantic. Let's let's lay out a a, a tremendous. Let's let's hurl an invective, huh? All right, pause now. All you guys out there in your radios, all of you guys that are driving along playing turnpike tag. All you guys that have just spotted a chick in the Mustang ahead. And you are about to pass her and give her that fantastic, great, wonderful, crinkly-eyed Glenn Ford smile that you've been working on. Turn your radio down now for ten seconds. Okay, pull it. Now, listen. All right, all you guys out there, prepare your radios for it. Do you really want to do that? All you laying out there at Jones Beach, <laughs> pretending you're looking at the stars. You know, you're seafood fans, you're looking at the ocean, all that stuff. All of you guys that are standing up on the top of buildings, all of you be surprised at the number of fantastic social events right now. Great human dramas are being played out on the top of 10-story buildings. In the dark. Next to a chicken coop. With a transistor radio playing full blast at this very moment with this show on. Incidentally, it has just come to my mind how we are breaking the mood for a lot of people out there. <laughs> you know, the mood is very important when you're about to consummate this fantastic, tremendous Fordham Road romance. You know, the magnetic eyes that meet over that hot dog at Rikers? Two or three months ago, and now it's slowly built up to this point where you're sitting now and you're hurling your, you're hurling your 42 Mercury along the highway out there along Queen. Incidentally, can you ever imagine a better name for a, a road than Utopia Highway? And it goes through Flushing. <laughs> Come on, there's a poetic justice to these things, you know? They, they fit. Well, right now, there are a lot of guys that are trying to subtly turn their radio to another station. <laughs> Let's get some music, Clara. And she says, wait a minute, I want everybody sang. Just a minute. <laughs> I wonder how many people out there right now are cursing that, that thing that cast them into this mold. That here is this guy driving. He's a playboy reader. He sees himself as six and a half feet tall, beautiful, flat stomach. He sees himself as a guy who is going to take his two weeks on a Riviera. He makes fantastic salads. And actually, all he is is little, fat, short Charlie Applerot. <laughs> Lifetime subscriber to the center fold-out. <laughs> the greatest collection of mint playgirls in existence. He's got them all tacked up there in his pad at home, you know. And every month he waits for that magazine to come out. You know, his eyes dilated with excitement. The mailman walks up and says, here it is. Miss June, Charlie. Love has come to Charlie again. He split. Oh, love. He tacks it back up there like, and he starts pacing again, waiting for the next one. And now here he is. He's out with that, the real chick, you see. Real chicks never are like the people that mythology has created. Nor are men like 
the people that mythology has created. There is no man alive, including Anthony Perkins, who is as sensitive as Anthony Perkins. Thank you, man. Nor might I add, is there anybody alive who remotely approaches Jean Moreau in her magnificent understanding of the male psyche, the Simone Signores of existence, who work only in myth. There's just people named Mabel. There are millions of Howies. There are Clarences. There are people named Jane. And they all feel that vague, that vague sense of being cheated. Here is Esther Jane out there in the darkness. And she is riding with Clarence. And she is cursing the day that she was ever born. Why am I stuck with Clarence? All those beautiful chicks in Vogue magazine, they spend all of their time with magnificent people like Andy Warhol. Great thinkers like Tom Wolfe and all that. And here I am stuck with his clutch. And they're driving through the darkness on his leopard skin upholstery. That he got at great cost from Montgomery Ward. Took him two Saturdays to get it to fit. And he's got the decals on the side of his 53 Mercury, you know, with the tigers and the lions leaping, you know. <laughs> he's whistling along to the darkness, and inside of him he says, Oh, gee, this little, this little pimply slob. <laughs> and he pauses for a moment, and he says to him, Oh, Audrey Hepburn, where are you? Oh, and they're driving through Secaucus. <laughs> She's heading back there. Her glasses are still clouded from the air of the Garden State. <laughs> and they're heading out, and where are they going? They're going to the drive-in. They're going to the drive-in movie. They have this big screen, see. And on the screen, there is a 700-foot Audrey Hepburn. And she is approaching a 290-foot Cary Grant. And all around them in stereophonic sound, Dmitri Tiomkin has created love music that can be heard all the way down to Hunterdon County. And bum, 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 bum. Tiomkin is very, very influenced by Tchaikovsky. I hope you know that. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. And Carrie is approaching her like this, you know, and it's beautiful. And the music rises and it's in technicolor. And his suit never catches him in the collar, you know. <laughs> you notice that? Everything fits magnificently and she approaches him. And she's beautiful, and her eyes are sparkling, and her eyes then close. Bum, 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 bum. And there's Clarence sitting there watching. And there's Esther Jane sitting there watching. And all they can smell are the Chinese egg rolls. And the pizza pies, you know, that are being sold back there, and the kids are running up and down, and dogs are stopping by the rear wheel, you know. And after all, they're only eight minutes by air from Secaucus. 
there's other problems and a vague rain is starting to drift down over their windshield you know and the dust and the crud is floating down and Cary Grant is approaching her like this bum 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 and right on their their dashboard are two plastic saints blessing them looking down and by the way one plastic Casey Stengel because you know this is living pop art friend and so Clarence sits there and inside of his gut is this little feeling oh why am I cast in this mold why why didn't I at the age of six months decide to be an actor I could have been Cary Grant and I wouldn't have to work in the Costa County Department of that rotten crummy joint where I work I wouldn't be stuck with this chick who was born wearing a girdle <laughs> made out of stainless steel <laughs> and she sits there and she stares off in that true romanticism of the female the violins of her soul playing away and she says oh if I didn't have such a rotten mother if I didn't have such a klutzy father if I didn't grow up in a house where my old man wore long john underwear all of his life I could live a beautiful life and I could have been skinny and fantastic like Audrey Hepburn and I could have made the scene with Cary Grant and all the while that great drama of the myth is playing itself out the rain is coming down and then suddenly you know that terrible feeling we've all known it when the movie stops the screen lights up and there's only maybe 36 of you sitting in that movie house and you get up and you sort of walk out real funny and you back out and there's the street the sun is shining you know that terrible sneaky rotten feeling of going to the show in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday yeah and you get out there and the sun is still shining and everybody's working walking around and somehow you feel like you've been cut off from that dream world that world of beauty speaking of dream worlds friends what radio station is this come on spell it out and where are we crowd oh the big apple we're here where it's all happening right gang this is new york you poor clutches in Ohio. Ah, let me tell you, this is a rotten place to visit, but a fantastic place to live in, right? <laughs> oh, they don't have a Robert Moses in Ohio. Build them a great thing. Well, yeah, you know, this whole dream is going on, you know, and, and, and it's all based on myth. It really is a fantastic myth that once in a great while you find yourself entering a situation like that. And by the way, one of the great moments in a male's life is after he has been talking to this girl. These are the little, the, the genuine, uh, shall we say, uh, the genuine dramatic tensions that pull us. After you've been talking to this chick, you know, for a couple of weeks in the office or in school, you've been talking to her. 
little things are forming in your head. <laughs> and they're not always the things that we like to think of. Sometimes you think of beautiful lakes. Right, gang? <laughs> Trees and birds. The moon. <laughs> Have you ever felt like hitting the moon? I think the... <laughs> I think the moon has been responsible for more trouble in this world. I wonder how many guys made a momentous, catastrophic decision in a convertible because of that rotten moon. <laughs> You're both looking up at that thing. And she says, isn't it beautiful, Clarence? He says, yeah. He's confusing that with her, see. And she's confusing that with him. And she says, you know, that gives me a funny feeling. <laughs> she has a little myopia, too, you know. <laughs> and he says, me too. And then that great moment, his arm goes up behind him and begins to creep over the back of the seat. <laughs> that is the moment of decision, man. They're going over the horns. That is the moment of truth. And you know that fantastic, awful feeling? You got your hand going up like this. You know? And all of a sudden, she goes, whoop. <laughs> you pull it down. You turn on the key. You say, well, I got to get home. I got bowling tomorrow, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's, I wonder what, how, on the other hand, I wonder, I've often wondered how women feel sitting in a car and they feel this guy's arm going back over the seat. And he's trying to pretend he's just being casual. That's the way he always drives, like that. You know? With that cramp, you know, it's gonna. You know, I wonder how many guys' pitching arms have been ruined forever by that, you know? <laughs> well, I, I've often wondered, you know, what about chicks, how they feel, feeling this arm going over their shoulder. Is there a decision that says, uh-uh, uh-uh? Or is there another voice that says, ah, he's nibbling. <laughs> Play your cards right. And like a smallmouth bass, he's going to hit that bassarino, and the next thing you know, I'll be reeling them in, you know. <laughs> I wonder whether or not women have a sense of sporting. <laughs> Are men like game fish? And is there what they... Yeah. Uh, look, look carefully over in the darkness. You'll see a guy sitting there with a big spoon sticking out of his mouth. <laughs> Trouble hooks, you know. <laughs> well, I, I want to point out to you, in case you're interested, girls, there are several types of fish, you know. There's the game fish, and there's then what they call the rough fish. Be careful. These are carp, bullheads, the Martys of the fish world. <laughs> Believe me, the difference between a bullhead and a rainbow trout... They, oh, there it goes. Fantastic. Let's give him a hand. Oh, we're swinging tonight. You know, you know, one other thing, one other thing about that, about that business of, of, of the moment of truth. 
You want to hear the moment when I made a decision? Yeah. Well, I'm in the dreamland, see? Flick and Schwartz and Bruner and I have decided to go big time scragging. This costs two bucks a head, see? And have you ever heard of the stag line? You know, you always hear about this, but nobody talks about how it feels to be in one. You know, all the short stories that F. Scott Fitzgerald writes about are the guys with the Zelda in their arms. You know, Zelda's here, F. Scott is here, you know, and they've got this thing going. He doesn't talk about that long, silent line of guys hiding behind the potted palms, peering at him, see, watching with big, hungry eyes. Well, Flick and Schwartz and Bruner and myself are dressed up. We got white shirts on. I am wearing that fantastic white tie that my Aunt Min gave me. The one with the silver snail on it, hand-painted. I got it for graduation. You know, it's outlined in red. It's beautiful tie. And I'm wearing my electric blue sport coat. You know, the one I saved up once to buy for 1875 at Bonds. I picked it off the gas pipe racks. You know, have you ever thought, have you, wouldn't you like to see yourself, a picture of yourself, man, when you really thought you were sharp? What an embarrassing picture. This is great. And, and this coat, by the way, had six and a half foot shoulders. It had shoulders that went out way like this. I could reach out and touch them, you know, like this. I could turn all the way around in it, see? And it wouldn't move, the whole coat, you know? I'd turn around, get back in it, put my arms through it like that, and hang. And it was made out of some kind of horse blanket material that he said was Irish Shetland Worsted. Actually, it was used Brillo. You know, all itchy all over, you know, and it had little things hanging down there. And, and, and I, had, I, had a, I had a pair of, of slacks, which were my special slacks, you know, when, when I'm going out on a big time. They were cocoa colored. And they were so tight that when I stood there next to the pot of palms, you could hear them thrumming. They just go going. I'm standing there, and once in a while, you'd hear something go ping. You know, just stand. I couldn't move very good. I walk like this. I stand there, you know, and, and it gave you what they call a continental Italian flag. Incidentally, that's the way it's pronounced in Hammond, Indiana, Italian. So you'd stand like this, see, and I'm waiting there with my blue coat. My silver tie. Flick is next to me with his tartan plaid. Red, green with a tiny fleck of platinum. Running through it. It's a very tasteful thing. <laughs> and all four, Schwartz had the first wash and wear suit in our neighborhood. And, and I'll tell you what happened after he washed. It, was, it, had, a, it had a fascinating accordion pleat. He had horizontal pleats all the way down. <laughs> man, have you ever had the kind of... Women don't know these problems of men. Have you ever had the kind of slacks, you buy them, you get them back from the cleaners, and you know they're in that plastic bag and they look so great. You, know, you can smell that touch of kerosene about them, you know. And there they are, hanging there. See, this dollar and a half little pink thing on it. It's just guaranteed and all that. You take it off and you put them on and you, 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 put, you pull them up like this and they got that knife edge thing down in them. 
knife edge like that. And for about 15 milliseconds, they look fantastic. Then all you got to do is go like this. And 18 things appear this way. You got, you got things that go all the way across like that. And you raise one leg like that, and you got a bag hanging down. And you never can figure out how the other guys do it, you know? And how about those shirts, man? You open up this beautiful shirt, you know. Have you ever seen those shirt commercials on the air? Well, let me tell you something. I did a shirt commercial. For those of you who are interested in this gimmick, have you watched those guys in the shirt commercials? You seen that guy that dresses in the morning and that chick says, Why don't you stay home from work today, Charlie? Because of his shirt, you know? Boy, there's a lot can be done with a shirt, see? <laughs> and he's putting his shirt on, and have you noticed that shirt? That shirt, it's like it's been sprayed on. Beautiful, fantastic, and it fits. He puts the tie on, and he stands there, and it looks like he's been carved out of alabaster. <laughs> well, that's the truth. He has been. <laughs> that shirt is sprayed on him. Well, let me tell you how they do that. For those of you that are interested, I did a shirt commercial nationwide on television. And it was on the Today Show. Oh, yeah, big time, baby. <laughs> All those fantastic Alka-Seltzer commercials. That's real big television there, see? And I'm on this show, so I said, look, Chef, you're going to have to do this shirt commercial. So you've got to get in early. Well, the doggone show rehearses at 4 a.m., they meant you get in at 3 o'clock, you know. That's early on that show. So 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm down there at Rockefeller Center where the show comes out of the studio. And they are fitting me with this shirt. There are 36 guys working on it. Now, you know how they do this, men? They have a special shirt, see? And you put this thing on three guys, lower it down over you. See? It comes down out of the ceiling with little wires, see? They lower it down. And then there are nine guys on the floor. They pull it down, see? It's like, it's like covering a Zeppelin, you know? <laughs> they pull it down, and this shirt has been specially made. It has 422 tiny nylon threads, which run down under your feet, see? It's like you got stirrups on, see? And they pull this thing, and it's got little tightening things in it. They tighten it all down, and all of a sudden you can't move. It's like you're in chain mail, see? And it slowly pulls your gut in. Until all of a sudden you begin to squirt out of the top of it. Well, I started out, I am five feet ten when I began. When the commercial went on the air, I was just shade under six six. I stood there like this, and they light this whole thing, see, and they say, stand there now. Well, the show goes on the air in a half an hour, and I stood. I couldn't move, you know. It's a, I'd move a little bit and one foot would go up. I stood like this and all these guys, hold it, hold it. They're spraying you with airplane dope. You know, that tightened, that stretches the skin. And now my gut is in, boing, and my ribs are sticking out, you know. And they held that pose and John Chancellor is waiting. He says, hold it, Chef, hold it. Hold it, Chef. Now, just a minute. We're going on here in a minute and a half. Hold it. And by now, my blood has stopped. It's completely stopped, and I can hear, you know, have you ever had the feeling when you can hear your pulse? Well, I can hear it. It's go gunk. Gunk. Gunk, 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 gunk. It's slowing up, you know, gunk. 
Kunk, I'm standing like this. And then he says, now, wait a minute. Now, you've, this is the director. You would not believe there are at least six directors on a commercial like that. There is one director called the Smile Director. He handles only smiles. And he's a great expert on all types of smile. The seductive smile, the satisfied smile, the smile of the handsome man about to take over the agency smile. And that's the one we've been working on. See, all that. I've got this confident smile. I'm standing there like that. And then suddenly we hit the air. Chancellor says, good morning. It's time for today. He says, and before we do anything else, uh, it's time now for a quick commercial. Boom, and they cut me. Coast to coast. Coast to coast. My mother is in Hammond, Indiana watching. She can't believe it. All of a sudden, I'm Cary Grant. And she knows I'm not Cary Grant. I'm really just a fire plug with feet, you know. And I come out of the screen there, see, and, and the, the voice of the announcer, Hugh Downs, he says, Yes, man, notice the magnificent fit of this beautiful, new, double-pointed arrow, tapered, ruin, hock, and regular conch in a spittle out. It has the special double jabos which pull in the back and up and down the side. You'll notice that his smile of, his smile of total confidence comes from the fact that his shirt really fits. Yes, pick it up at your favorite dealer now. Now back to John Chancellor. And they cut the Chancellor, and all of a sudden it all gave... It all gave in, and Chancellor says, Thank you very much, Shep, and now let's take you to Washington, where Chet Huntley is on the stand. These are the behind-the-scenes things, which you never see. Well, that's all part of the fantasy world. And so millions of men the next day says that that can happen to Shepard. The human cantaloupe. That must be a fantastic shirt. So 20 minutes later, there are 8 million guys trying to stick it in. And it keeps going out the other. They stick it in this side and the back comes out. This is a male problem. Have you ever gone through a really important moment, like with a chick or with a with a big client, and you get out of the office, or you leave her house, and you suddenly discover your shirt's been at half-mast all the time, <laughs> hanging down to your knees behind. <laughs> this is a male problem. Women don't even know this. And one of the great moments in a man's life is when he's standing there in his shirt, and he's talking to this girl, and he begins to feel it's getting soggy. The soggy shirt is a real problem. And he feels it crawling up. And as it crawls up, it kind of grabs you in funny, strange places. Right, man? And you stand like this, and you sort of tuck like that. And as you tuck, it gets worse. And all of a sudden, you start getting fatter for some reason. These are all masculine problems. Well, one of the real problems is that moment of truth that I was talking to you about. To fight or not to fight. Have you ever been with a chick when all of a sudden somebody comes up and says, come here, baby, what are you doing with this klutz? <laughs> what do you do? Well, you know what Robert Cummings would do. You know what guys like Tab Hunter would do. He'd say, what'd you say? Click. You know, there's that little click and the guy falls over backwards. Have you ever tried it? 
This is a nervous lapse in his crowd. <laughs> well, Flick and Schwartz and Bruner and I are all standing in a line back in the potted palms. And this couple comes dancing past. Now, this guy was an ordinary looking guy. He's got this chick and she is saying, let me go. Let me go. Stop it. Let me go. He says, come on, baby. What do you think I brought you here for? She says, let me go. Let me go. Stop it. And she looks right at me and says, help. <laughs> now, what are you applauding here? The moment of truth or fear? She says, help, help me. And Schwartz says, help her. Go ahead. Go ahead, Shep. She's talking to you. I look at this guy in the eye, and he looks me right in the eye, and he says, What are you going to do about it, Mac? There you are. That's the moment of truth. What do you do? You say, <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Go, man. If I were in your place, I'd grab her too. Go. <laughs> no, you can't. So, about six milliseconds of sheer terror go through me. All of a sudden, you know, there's a funny thing that sets in. There's a kind of nuttiness. It must be the basis of kamikaze flying. <laughs> you say, well, what the hell, you know? Say, all right, Mac, let go of her. He says, okay. He throws her down. He says, all right, wise guy. And with that, I don't know what made me do it. My right lashed out like a pit cobra. Unerring, sharp, dynamite exploded four inches off to the left of his ear. <laughs> he fainted neatly, and the next thing I know, I'm in the back seat of Flick's Pontiac. <laughs> Teeth are coming out of my ear. You don't know that the thing goes all the way through, they come out here, you know. And I'm laying in the back seat, seeing it's all over. I, I says, what happened? Schwartz, Flick, Bruner, what happened? And they're driving through the night. And all I can hear is Flick hollering, hey, baby! And Schwartz says, hey, there's another one over there. And I'm laying there. It was then that I realized that the difference between fantasy and reality is like 10 million miles. And friends, we have just one... Oh, by the way, those of you out there who think this program goes off the air at 11, and there are a lot of you who do, I'm going to give you a warning that the real stuff starts at five minutes after 11. We come on for the last hour, which is not for women and children. <laughs> That's when the real stuff happens. Let's give the real stuff a hand, fans. We'll be back in just five minutes. On WOR Radio.